to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has worked at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts, hear stories from the emergency department, and listen to people who have struggled from addiction. Each episode, we will answer questions from you, our listeners. To learn more about the show, submit a question, access educational material, or even take a quiz, you can visit us on hightruths.com. Friends, I absolutely love being your host and bringing you the rock stars of medicine. And today, I am so humbled and honored to bring you a very special and amazing rock star. But first, let's hear our episode question from Greg Rummel in Maryland. Greg is a second year medical student. Hello, Dr. Lev. Thank you for uh, doing this podcast for us. I know there's a ton of classmates and I that uh, really enjoy listening uh, and tuning in each week. So I'm Greg and I'm a second year medical student in Maryland. And right now we're learning a lot about addiction uh, in medical school. And so recently, Oregon passed a law that's allowed the use of hard drugs such as like magic mushrooms. And there's been a campaign against the stigma for drug use and overall normalization of drug use. Now for me, I grew up uh, kind of with my parents telling me that drugs are bad. However, with this being legalized now, um, what, what are we telling kids? What do we do as parents? Uh, and, and what do we tell patients? It, it, all this information is kind of confusing and I'm just wondering if you could further explain for us. Thank you, Greg, for your question. It's so nice to have medical student callers. And to our listeners, please notice that medical students are starting to learn about addiction medicine early in their training. That's amazing. And Greg, that's an excellent question, and you articulate it well, and it's indeed confusing. And so to bring light on this dilemma, I have one of the rock stars of medicine, Dr. Bertha Madras. Dr. Madras is an amazingly accomplished woman, and I want to read a little bit of her bio. So Greg and your medical student friends, can this is something to uh, aspire to. And Dr. Madras's um, bio will be on the a podcast show notes if you want to read further. Um, she studied biology at MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. She's a professor in psychobiology at Harvard Medical School for 34 years. She's authored over 200 scientific manuscripts, articles, book chapters, co-editor of books. She has patents. Bertha, you have patents. 19 U.S. and 27 international issued patents. Um, she has been the White House Deputy Director of Demand Reduction at the Office of National Drug Control Policy, where I have served. She is the brains behind the SBIRT program. Anywhere in America where you have screening, brief intervention, referral to treatment, that is the inspiration by Dr. Madras. She has shepherded and wrote portions of the President's Commission on Combating Drug Addiction and the Opioid Crisis. Um, she served on the World Health Organization, um, done scientific work at the Vatican, served on the National Academy of Medicine, and has numerous awards, recognitions, courses, presentation, and that's the abridged version. And so, Dr. Madras, welcome to High Truths, and we're really humbled to have you on the program. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. I'm delighted to answer that first question, which I think is probably one of the most significant ones that our society faces. On the one hand, we're seeing normalization of drug use, 
And on the other hand, we're seeing people saying destigmatize drug use and destigmatize people with a substance use disorder. And how does that weigh into what parents are going to teach their children about drugs and the future of this nation? We have a major challenge approaching us. <clears throat> and in many ways, it's already here. Uh, as of, of uh, Friday, December 4th, the House of Representatives voted on a bill call on a bill to legalize marijuana throughout the country at the federal level. And um, what you can tell by who voted on which side, this was a completely partisan issue with one side voting almost unanimously for the bill, the other side unanimously against it. So we have not only a dilemma with regard to drug policy, but we also have a massive chasm in how people view drug policy. The era of unanimity, the era in which people felt that drugs were universally problematic seems to have waned and it's being replaced by a very divisive um, concept, divisive in terms of who agrees and who disagrees with current policy. So let me start off by saying the concept of the war on drugs, which when I served as deputy director of demand reduction, I said that concept does not resonate with me. What resonates with me is that this is not a war on drugs. This is a defense of our brains. And I think that placing it in that context really helps me define to myself and to others what I'm about to say. I love that. Protecting your brain. Defending our brains. So we go on to the, uh, the, the real issue at hand, which is the normalization and legalization first of marijuana. And now it seems hallucinogens. And that, that process is definitely taking uh, up a great deal of time and energy and a lot of financial investment as there was for marijuana. With regard to stigma, let's, let's talk about stigma. Stigma is not stigma is not stigma. If a person has a substance use disorder and is in pain because of it, and is seeking treatment or is not seeking treatment, to stigmatize that individual, to deny him full coverage, to deny him medical services, to deny the, even, even the subject in medical schools when it, it, it is going to have an impact on every medical student's life is completely wrong. We have to have a compassionate view of people who have what some would call a brain disease of addiction. We have to have a compassionate view for people seeking help. And we have to medicalize the process because the overlap between addiction and mental health and medical consequences are so interwoven 
that to try to separate addiction as a separate entity that does not merit the attention it deserves in, in, in the healthcare profession is completely wrong. So destigmatizing the whole concept of a person with a substance use disorder is to me a, a, a reasonable and rational uh, process in our society. I, I liken it to having any chronic disease. If you have diabetes, yes. um, you deserve compassionate care. And if you ate cake and your sugar went ha- high, that's not good, but we're not going to kick you out of the practice that's for right. it. We're going to get you a little more insulin and, and work on that. And it's a chronic relapsing disease, um, yes. just like asthma, mm-hmm. hypertension, diabetes, or anything else. Now, we get into the slippery slope when people say we should not we should not stigmatize drug use. And there's the distinction between the two. And here's the reason why. If we normalize use, if we medicalize the use of drugs with abuse potential, and if we increase access and legalize, What is going to stop the pipeline to addiction? It is going to grow and grow until it will overwhelm many of our social services, including health care, including safety, including criminal justice. And I think we're already seeing that. And we're seeing that. And not to minimize the fact that drug addiction is endangers the user, it torments families, and it does disrupt the social order. So how can we prevent the pipeline into addiction? Some people say the way to prevent the pipeline is simply to give young people all the information and let them make their own choices. That doesn't work, folks. Because their brain's not done growing. Their brain is not done growing. The choices they make may be very emotional because one of the large distinctions between an adolescent and an adult that we can see with brain imaging is that the part of the brain that's involved in emotions and feelings and gut responses and risk-seeking is very active during adolescence. And the part of the brain that becomes much more active and becomes almost supremacist in terms of of our behavior is a completely different part of the brain that's involved in judgment, in planning, in risk aversion, in doing cost-benefit equations in our own brain. The frontal lobe. The frontal lobe. So what what do we say to children? How do we prevent them from using drugs and still not stigmatize people with a substance use disorder? And from my perspective, stigmatizing drugs is really a critical thing. The consequences are just too vast, especially for young people. We had this conversation we were when we were having lunch at the National Academy of Medicine, and I think 
um, you said it best in what you just said, is that stigma is bad when you're talking about treatment for people who have a medical problem. But stigma is a very important prevention tool in preventing people from getting into drugs in the first place. And my favorite uh, stigma example is uh, kissing, kissing an ashtray. Like, do you want to smoke? You know, being around a smoker, that's like kissing an ashtray. And in that campaign really helped and resonated with teenagers to stop smoking. That, and that was stigma, but it was used as a prevention tool. Yes. The other thing that was um, very effective in the truth campaign against smoking is making young people aware that they are essentially being exploited by entrepreneurs in order to get them addicted, in order for them to become lifelong users of drugs. And so people will keep making money off them for the rest of their lives. Make no mistake about it. Drugs are a very lucrative form of money. And they are a lucrative form of money that is disrespectful of what happens to the user. There's very few other things in our society that disrespect the user. If you go to Disney World and you spend a lot of money, you've had a lot of pleasure and there are no consequences. If you buy a wonderful book or put on a dress that you have craved or or almost anything, watch a sports team or play sports, things that people spend money on, there's very little downside to them. There is a vast potential for downside with drugs. So Bertha, one of the things we did with High Truths is visit um, a cannabis dispensary. It was my very first time going to a dispensary. And that same day I went to Walmart to go shopping a huge store. And then I sat outside the parking lot of this uh, cannabis dispensary and it was busier, way busier, <laughs> it seemed to me, than than Walmart, than the supermarket. And people going in and out, everybody com coming out with a baggie of their, their goods and pure cash business, two ATMs in the store, um, booming industry. So I think what you have, to, you know, your point about money, um, is very important. And, and we learned that from big tobacco, right? I mean, if an adult or older person started smoking, it, they won't become a lifetime smoker. But if you yeah. got them during that prime brain development age, then you have a customer for life. And it's about creating customers yeah. and money. And that's been excavated in our national database showing that if kids start um, before the age of 15, uh, they start smoking marijuana, they are twice as likely to become addicted. Yeah. So that after four years, 20% have a substance use disorder. But if you start as an adult, after four years, the likelihood is less than 10%. So adolescents are very high risk. The same has been shown for alcohol, for almost every other drug with addictive potential. The younger you begin, the far more vulnerable you are to becoming addicted and to having a lifelong struggle within yourself to stop and to not relapse.
And we're we're fighting um, the big industry, um, big marijuana, but we're also fighting a huge movement with lots of money, billions of dollars that are trying to normalize drug use, right? And that's what we're seeing in Oregon. They disguise it in terms of treatment, like, oh, we want to have money for treatment. But it's really one of the first steps in normalizing drug use. Do you, do you agree? Of course. Well, the movement is to, the movement with marijuana was first to medicalize and then to legalize and to normalize. And that's true across the board. With regard to the, uh, the um, Oregon bill, it's, the next thing they did was approve psilocybin for treatment, for which the data are still very early. And there's no clear evidence that this kind of treatment is scalable. So that just to explain to our audience what that is, the, the psilocybin, that's magic mushrooms. And believe it or not, I studied this in the early 1960s, this drug. <laughs> so I'm pretty familiar with it. <laughs> that's when, um, right, LSD was very big, right? And the Beatles. LSD, and, and, and I inherited the LSD from the CIA experiments. Right? Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Yes. So these are, uh, so psilocybin is a hallucinogen, and so is LSD. Uh, they have certain targets, uh, complex targets in the brain. And there are some pilot studies that involve 20 to 30 people or so, and a few hundred in other cases, that indicate that under very constrained conditions, they may be beneficial in treating uh, anxiety and stress of cancer or major depression. So there are a few studies, most of them that have been done with a certain measure of quality have been done at Johns Hopkins under the supervision of Roland Griffiths. But if you normalize and legalize a hallucinogen for, let's say, for treating depression, what is the message that kids are going to get? The same message as marijuana. And it's that not even the, well, first of all, your point with number of people in the study. I mean, we need to remember the opioid epidemic started on a study of 28 people. Nobody gets addicted and boom, everybody in the United States needs to be prescribed opioid. And we need to learn the lessons that a study of 28 people, 50 people, does not mean that we should have a public health policy for, you know, right. 40 million Americans. Well, the, the lessons we learned from the opioid crisis were so profound, and yet we're not learning them. Right. It's I mean, the lessons, it's very simple to trace what happened with the opioid crisis. There are at least 32 factors that fed it, but the big ones were a vast increase of prescriptions for opioids for chronic pain without any accountability, without any evidence that they work for chronic pain based on two, two remarkably weak, uh, weak publications. One was a five sentence letter to a journal saying they looked at hospital records of people 
and the people who were given opioids did not become addicted without ever asking what happens when they leave the hospital, if they ever had access after they left the hospital. And the analogy of somebody having uh, an operation in the hospital is not the same thing as somebody getting pain meds for headache or back pain. Precisely. And then came the Portanoi article with 38 people saying that they were not, um, you know, it it was such a a foolish. And the drug companies that produce the opioids, they began to quote these papers, which were from, from the perspective of science were junk science right because they simply had no vision they had no real relevance to the to the to the world but they were used as ammunition to spread the word that opioids are safe for chronic pain and suddenly we had a 350% ramp up in prescriptions for many people who probably didn't need them. And that's what started it. And what it did was rekindle the heroin problem and it re and it ignited the fentanyl problem in our country. And, and it's we, amazing that we're not learning that. the lessons when it comes to these laws about uh, marijuana and magic mushrooms or anything else. Because in fact, when you ask young people Today, there's increasing evidence that their use is now starting to climb very dramatically, especially in states with medical marijuana. And when you ask them, why are they using and the response is, it's a medicine. Yeah. Now, and, or their parents used it also when it's in the family and everybody does it. I think my, yeah. my daughter, was, my daughters, when they were in college, said everybody used or tried marijuana, that there's very few people who haven't. And I think that that's a perception. It's not scientifically true, but that is a perception that young people have. It's a perception that young people have. Unfortunately, it's, it's growing. It's, it's being normalized. But it's being normalized because it is a big industry. Yeah. And all this. And so what were the lessons learned from the opioid crisis? The science was poor, number one. The same is true for marijuana. Number two is that people who were really concerned that this was a dangerous path for the country to take were not listened to. Only the advocates had the media on their side. The advocates have had grassroots patient movements on their side. The advocates obviously had major, major donations, gifts from the pharmaceutical industry. And they were the ones who were listened to and the others were dismissed as simply drug warriors. Number three is that all the federal regulations that were put in place to control a class two substance, which is the, you know, the most dangerous class of, of drugs that are that have high abuse potential, but also medical use. All these and maybe Bertha, tell us, tell fail. our audience, tell our audience what these classes are. I don't know if everybody knows what that means. So, drugs are the Controlled Substances Act, which arose from the nineteen early nineteen seventies, was designed to regulate access to substances with abuse potential. 
And class one, category one, was were drugs with the high abuse potential and no medical use. So in that class was heroin, hallucinogens, marijuana, and um, and and you know um, certain psychostimulants that are not approved for any medical use. Class two what were drugs with high abuse potential plus proven medical use that the FDA has approved our Food and Drug Administration. Class three meant uh, moderate abuse potential and medical use. Class four and five were lower and lower categories of abuse potential. So drugs like modafinil, drugs like dextromethorphan, you know, um, cough medicines mm -hmm. fell into that. And um, what's happened now is that the movement in Oregon, the legalization movement and the movement through, which I see throughout the country, is to get rid of this classification altogether and to take all drugs in class one, category one, which is high abuse potential, no proven medical use, and just put them into the... Um, yeah, class ones for our listener, those are the illegal ones. That's the heroin, the methamphetamine, yeah. um, the illegal ones. They want to not make it illegal. They want everything to be legal. Yeah, that's right. And so people say, well, it, the, the Controlled Substances Act is a joke, some people. Because how can you compare heroin with marijuana, you know, which are both passe? And it's they look on death rates as the category, but of course that's not the category. Lucinogens are in there as well. It's high abuse potential. And how is that rated? That's evidence-based. It's how many people use, how many people get into trouble using these drugs. And if the FDA hasn't approved them, then there shouldn't be increased access to them through the retail market because they are a danger to self and to others. What do you think about um, the American Society of Addiction Medicine has their policy statement that they published October of 2020? And it's a robust um, document, but one of the things that they advocate is that marijuana should be a scheduled two drug. Um, and what do you think about that? Well, I've looked at their statement and what is, from my perspective, uh, an, an uninformed statement is that the criteria for schedule two implies that it has legitimate medical uses, which the FDA endorses by a very stringent approval process. Now, there is no such thing as marijuana per se being approved by the FDA. THC is approved, but at doses that are trivial compared to what is currently being marketed in dispensaries. Right. So I could write you know, a prescription the starting now. Dose, the starting dose of THC is 2.5 milligram. Uh, the stuff that's sold in dispensaries, the shatters and the dabs and the high potency are 10 to 20 to 50 times more that. Right. The second issue is 
The FDA does not approve a drug for 92 medical indications. It approves a drug for a specific indication in which there has been evidence for safety and effectiveness. And they approve a drug. They don't approve a plant with 500 different chemicals, including carcinogens. How do you approve a plant? How do you prove a plant where you have zero control at this point over its constituents, its its, its composition of matter, its shelf life, the ratio of THC to cannabidiol or any of the other cannabinoids? There are now 104 known cannabinoids in the marijuana plant. Contaminants. Contaminants. bacterial contaminants, uh, insecticides, pesticides, fungus, and fungicides, and the states that have approved marijuana, there is really no national methodology for regulating the composition of matter. There just isn't. Some states are a little bit more rigorous, others are not. The labeling was just published. It's a joke how much THC or cannabidiol or the ratios was just shown that the labeling is completely wrong on on a, on a great deal of these products. And the FDA would never allow that. If we let the FDA be eroded by this current movement, we can say goodbye to quality assurance. For many for drugs, drugs, right? Not, I mean, for all drugs, because what's to stop somebody from saying a vaccine is going to um, prevent you from having COVID without the FDA looking? I, I love at tens that. <laughs> of thousands of paper pages of data. That's what it takes to get a drug approved. So, from my perspective, ASAM has made a vast mistake. And I don't know what the motives were. I don't know what the pressure points were, but I do not think it was a wise decision. And the reason it wasn't is that it's not evidence-based. It is simply taking the modern talking points and just making their policy statement based on talking points and not science. Interesting. I love the fact that you bring the COVID vaccine as an analogy because um, again, we talked about opioids having a study of, you know, 28 people, and now we should give this to the whole world. But I think if people uh, were asked, do you want to take a vaccine that we tested on 28 people, um, and maybe you'll get Guillain-Barre and become paralyzed from it, would you want to take this <laughs> vaccine? And I don't, but if we say, oh, you want to use this marijuana, and it, it helped cancer cells in a mice petri dish um this is good for cancer (laughs) exactly well you know there's precedent in our history in the 1970s i I, have you heard of laetril laetril apricot pits apricot pits exactly i took care of a guy patent uh he advocated for this and said it cured cancer and 70 more than 17 states approved laetril for cancer on a ballot initiative, just as we have now. And then the NIH got involved and said, 
First, they did a survey of physicians and only about three or four had something positive to say. And then they actually sponsored clinical trials, randomized, controlled, double-blinded, and found not only does it do nothing for cancer, but it in fact has detrimental toxic effects. I took care of one patient that I'll, I'll never forget. He was a young man who had uh, a terrible cancer and he couldn't get treatment uh, for cure in the United States. So he went to Mexico and he got the Laetrile uh, uh, treatment. And I saw him as a patient with headache and I did a spinal tap and I got pure pus come oh. out of his spinal fluid from the Laetrile. Uh, I've never oh. had that in my life where you open up the spinal fluid, you know, fluid and it's just it's, it was terrible. I'm so sad. Well, that's but, terrible. I mean, we've seen the same movement with Ibogaine, another drug that I studied when, yeah. when I was a graduate student. That's making a comeback now. It's making a comeback. Everything, we're reinventing the wheels from long ago and pretending that everything has changed because now we're in a more enlightened phase. Mm -hmm. And Ibogaine went into limited trials. NIDA actually took it seriously. And two people died in the trials, two out of nine. And that, that information remains latent and buried. And now it's being resurrected again as this cure-all for addiction and heaven knows what else. People want just a simple pill to... to cure a problem that's way more complicated than that? Well, you know, one of the problems that I see with this country is we certainly don't have more pain than Europe. And yet Europeans prescribe opioids at one-fifth the rate of the United States. Right. Although we're getting better. We have to celebrate our accomplishments. The accomplishments are wonderful. If we yeah. have a chance, we should talk about them. The other thing is that we are amongst the wealthiest, more stable, most secure nations on earth compared to European history or Chinese or Japanese or histories of so many countries with terrible, terrible strife. And yet somehow people here feel that they need to have artificial sensations to make them feel better or to make them feel good. What's that? I do not fathom the rationale behind that. Oh. I do not fathom the rationale that drugs are a consequence of poverty. No, as because a matter of fact, there's an opposite message. Have you um, watched, uh, there's a Netflix show called The Queen's Gambit. Have you watched that? No. It It's, an amazing show. I really enjoyed it, except for the message that it sends. So they the show is about a female uh, chess master, and she was given tranquilizers while she was in a orphanage, and those tranquilizer helped her solve chess problems. And she developed an addiction. And they even mentioned the drugs that she was addicted to in the show: librium, methobamate, soma. And that somehow made her a better chess player. And for that, I hate the message because they didn't show on 
um, the fact that you can't just stop taking a benzodiazepine. You'd have a seizure and some serious problem, especially if you took it since you were a young child. Um, And they glorified the use of these tranquilizers as a way of making her think better. Yeah, as as real therapeutics for things that they're not indicated for. Yeah. And that's that's a major problem. It's I think the US has to have a complete rethinking of what messages are being sent to young people. The fact that big industry is behind a lot of politicians who are advocating for marijuana. Um, I think there is so much that we need to revamp and to begin to reconstruct our views on drugs. We hear about the failed war on drugs. This is the mantra. And yet, as I said, I don't subscribe to waging a war on drugs, but I will say that supply side issues are essential to a drug policy, not only demand side issues. And the reason I say that is in my own experience, when I was at ONDCP, we had a terrible fentanyl crisis in 2006. Nobody even talks about it now. Mm -hmm. It was terrible relative to the past because we had a thousand deaths nearly in one year and that set off a panic button in me. And we organized a fentanyl forum at UPenn to try to address this and brought together medical examiners, physicians, educators, law enforcement, media people, everyone, 200 people in the room to try to alert the public on this terrible danger that was killing 1,000 people, not 20, not 40,000, but one. And then the super lab that made it in Toluca, Mexico, was taken out and it was gone. The deaths went back to like five, 10, a handful. And had that lab not been taken out, we would have seen fentanyl rise and rise like it is now. The labs are more remote now and much more difficult to get, but supply can drive access which drives use that's certainly true for the opioids it's certainly true for marijuana and it will be true for all the others and then what will the politicians say about the pipeline to addiction and what are we going to do about it it's it's one of the fun parts of me being in dc is the people that i got to meet and one of them is dr jerome jaffe do you know him I know Jaffe. I just... Jerry Jaffe is is has the most wonderful wealth of experience. I just I I loved him, and I feel like he like took me on as a mentor, and we would have weekly, I mean monthly meetings. And he he's Dr. Jerome Jaffe is the very first drug czar of the United yes. States, and he served under Nixon during a time where we had veterans coming back from Vietnam. And they were coming back with a heroin use disorder. And he had to think of a way, well, what do I, what do we do as a nation to decrease this? And there, um, one program that he instilled is drug testing. He 
drug tested the soldiers before they came back to the United States. And if they were positive, then they got another two weeks. And that was a great motivator um, to stop using to get back home. And then the other thing was, well, what do we do with all these soldiers who've come back home now who are addicted to heroin? Are we going to have a horrible problem with a, a heroin epidemic in our country? And it didn't happen. And the reason that it didn't happen, some people say, oh, it's the social model. They are now surrounded by their family and their friends, and they have love and support that they didn't have when they were soldiers, and that's why they stopped using. But Dr. Jaffe says, no, that's not the real reason they stopped. The real reason they stopped is it wasn't available. You couldn't get heroin in the United States at that time, and you could and get it when you were in Vietnam. And yes. that's really to your point that Law enforcement is not going to solve the drug problem or the war on drugs, but they are a very essential partner in prevention because if we have less drugs, we have less users. And that goes exactly to your point, Bertha. Um, yes, your, your point is 100% correct. And that is when the soldiers landed on the tarmac, they were offered five penny bags of heroin, five cents for a bag of heroin. Mm -hmm. And they had access to it all day, every day, while they were in Vietnam. And once they got back here, the access was gone. Um, I, I think that's one of the, we did not have a massive um, marijuana uptick in use until the marijuana legalization, medicalization. I'm looking, I was looking at the data earlier today for a different reason. And, and the um, use has gone up on people over 18 uh, by between 35 and 60%. And over 26, over 55, the use has soared because there is normalization and access in every corner store. And make no mistake about it, the medicalization part is a very key issue. Because if you were to go to Walmarts and look at the dispensaries on a Friday and Saturday night, the traffic would be double and triple what it is during the week. And somehow, do people have more medical problems on the weekends? I don't think so. And, and, you know, the overlap between people who use it for recreation and use marijuana for, for medical purposes is, a, is well over 70%. And most of the users are men who are young and in apparently good health, except they all have this pain that seems to be intractable to any other medication other than marijuana. And that is a sarcastic statement, but it's precisely what the data are telling us. Yeah, and I wish we had more of that when I looked at medical examiner data and see who died with THC in their system. It was definitely a male, a male disease. Yeah, that's right. So, Dr. Madras, let's talk about uh, the amazing amount of advice that you would have. I'd like to hear your advice in this issue of what you tell parents about substance use and stigma and um, what you would tell um, um, 
our medical students. Let's start with medical students. I once attended a, an addiction subcommittee of the American Psychiatric Association, and they were about to come out with a policy endorsing marijuana as a medicine and, um, and for a number of indications. And I said, as a member of ONDCP, this was around 2008, I said, I am not going to tell you what your policy should be or what you should think. I said, I only ask you, because this is a meeting in June and we'll reconvene in September, just search the literature and find me the evidence for your policy, rather than the talking points that you've probably been handed by advocates. And when I came back in September, um, the chairman of the committee said, um, we agree with you. You're absolutely right. We went through the literature and we could not find with any level of confidence the medical indications that we were, you know, may, may even have erred by endorsing. So the feeling I have for medical students is look at what criteria you've been taught for safety and efficacy. Look at what the FDA requires of, in, of companies or entities that wish to have a drug approved. Look at all the regulations and learn for yourself. Look at all the meta-analyses that have been done. There are probably 20 now on what the literature says about marijuana. And yes, you will encounter many patients in your life that endorse the use of marijuana for their personal use because they say it makes them feel better. And that is not to be dismissed. But if you are going to designate it as a medicine, show me the data, show yourself the data, be intellectually honest in terms of all these studies. So that's number, that's what I would say to medical students. I don't want, you know, I prefer when, when we, when I was teaching, I taught for nearly 15 years, fourth year Harvard medical school students, uh, an elective course on addictions. And whenever a topic was controversial, like marijuana is a medicine or is nicotine the most addictive drug there is, instead of saying, this is how you should think, or these are the papers you should read, I would set the students up to do a debate with each other and have them go to primary sources and debate each other. And we would set up a three hour session with a debate and invariably that. what happened was they would come to the conclusions based on the science so very nice what do we tell parents it's a very interesting issue there are two facts that are emerging that are compelling for parents to know number one is if they use marijuana or alcohol or tobacco or opioids, the likelihood of their children using is much, much higher. Setting an so, example. 
by example, by access, by normalizing, whatever the reasons are, their children are much more likely to use. And if they want to protect their children during those precious years of brain development, they have to begin to look inside themselves and ask the very fundamental question, is this the right way to parent my child? Parents who use are also much more likely to neglect their children, to abuse children, to not care as deeply about certain issues. That's a global conclusion. It certainly does not apply to individual parents. There's some excellent parents that I think are in the user market, which I, you know, one cannot dismiss, but in statistically, parent, the level of abuse is much higher and neglect much higher among parents who are substance users and who are, have a use disorder. The second component of what to tell parents is don't stigmatize Uncle Joe who has an addiction. Don't stigmatize your child who's struggling with an addiction. But for heaven's sake, stigmatize drug use amongst your children. Because if you just strongly disprove of drug use, the likelihood is that your children will use less. And if their peers use, the likelihood is that you will mitigate the influence of their peers. And your opinion is paramount, paramount in this situation, unless you have a very loose and very unregulated type of parenting style, in which case, what you say may or may not, may, may not be uh, adhered to or, or absorbed into the psyche of your child. So parents have a massive, massive influence on what happens to their children and can neutralize the, the effect of their peers. There's even a few studies that indicate that what a parent feels and thinks about drugs is more important than actually if they use. What they say to their kids may be even more important than their, their children seeing the parents use. It's, it's still a, a, an early phase of, of research, but it's a very critical. I, I think that that research has been done with tobacco. You, you have generations of, of people who say, you know, grandpa smoked and he got lung cancer and, you know, grandma it has a event and I will never touch that because I've seen what that happened to my family. Yeah. The research is very ripe for tobacco. It's pretty ripe for alcohol. There's very good. It's just coming into play for marijuana and opioids. Mm -hmm. And um, it's a study that I'm in the midst of doing right now. Wow. Here. You're, you're always going. Go, go, go. <laughs> but it's, I, I think parents have, you know, 
to consider this a rite of passage, to consider this, well, our society's moving in that direction, to use all the rationalizations that parents use in order to give their children a sense of freedom with regard to experimenting with drugs is to me one of the greatest dangers that we have of parents of, of young adolescents. And I, I, anecdotally, I can just share with you an issue of, of several well-described, well-known fathers who used uh, marijuana with their, with their sons as a way of bonding with them. Right, like having a beer. Hey, I can't wait for you to turn 21 so you right. and I can have a beer together. We can have a, well, we can smoke together and sensing that it's no big deal because after all, it's only weed. Never did these fathers anticipate that their children would become severely, severely addicted to heroin. One of them eventually dying one of them going in and out of treatment for years and tormenting the parents, tormenting them. You're talking about someone in particular? It sounds like you're talking about... There are two individuals, two, as I say, they are well-known people, so I keep them anonymous. Mm. But somehow they never computed that if you normalize use of one drug, you raise the potential of a child going on to other drugs. I tell people that I, I haven't treated a person who's uh, woke up from naloxone from a fentanyl overdose. If I get them back, I ask them about their drug history, and, and invariably they started with marijuana yeah. um, at a young age, you know, 12, yeah. 13. Yeah. The common liability is marijuana smoking and alcohol use yeah that's the common risk liability because most kids who use one the probability of using the other two is very high and if they use marijuana it's the beginning not all people who use marijuana are going to progress to other drugs certainly not all adolescents will but the ones who are using cocaine and heroin and hallucinogens, invariably, the vast preponderance of them started with psychoactive marijuana. Bertha, you have the most amazing advice. And every time I have a conversation with you, I feel like I'm, you know, learning. Should get CME from this conversation. <laughs> this is, it's amazing. I, I enjoy it and look forward to it every time. And uh, so you, you gave great advice to Greg, our caller, and to parents out there. And um, Greg, if I had to summarize the answer to your question, I'd say that Oregon drug laws are problematic. Uh, normalization of drug use is a, a terrible public health risk to our country, maybe even worse than COVID. And I don't know if you'd agree with that. And I would say stigma 
is bad for people who have a problem that need help, but is a tool for prevention, especially um, youth, preventing youth from using drugs. So your parents who told you not to use drugs were doing uh, a service to you. And uh, as a result, you're a successful second year medical student. So, um, uh, you know, Greg, you are a entering an honorable profession um, with a long road ahead, but very well worth it. You'll be starting clinical rotations soon, interacting with patients, real patients for the first time. And it is a privilege um, that for me, after 30 years, I have not taken for granted um, the trust that patients have with you and, and confessing with you and, and looking to you for help. Um, and, uh, you know, they say, I remember being taught in medical school, 50% uh, of what they teach you now in a few years will be wrong. Um, I'm a victim of that, Bertha, when you were saying that uh, they were telling people, the doctors, that that opioids are healthy. That was the beginning of my career, and, and I prescribed a lot of things that I shouldn't have. Um, the only problem is, Greg, they don't tell you which 50% is going to be bad information, which 50% is good. So you'll have to use your spidey senses and, and uh, really think um, critically. And if something doesn't smell right, um, you know, you may be right behind that. And to you, um, Dr. Bertha Madras, thank you so much for joining us. Again, I learned so much from you and I look up to you um, um, as a, a role model for, for myself and um, for the work on addiction and prevention and your contribution to our country and to science and to prevention is uh, is amazing and it's really really an honor to have you on the program thank you so much thank you it was a delight spending an hour with you because i so appreciate your clinical wisdom your clinical experiences and insights of which i have none <laughs> yeah the beauty so of the scientist and the clinicians together <laughs> that's right so thank you so much for just indulging me and um I, I deeply appreciate the opportunity to share my thoughts with you and with others. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts give you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support from our sponsors. A sincere and warm thank you to CCR, Center for Community Research in San Diego, enhancing public health and safety through informed action. We want to hear from you. Post a comment or email us about one thing you learned from this program. We thank you for listening and hope you will help our rating by giving us a five-star review. And subscribe so you won't miss any of our information-packed weekly shows. Visit our website, hightruths.com, to submit a question, take a quiz, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Until next week, this is High Truths on Drugs and Addiction. Our producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions, and I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths. <laughs>